they're not, people aren't really paying attention anyway. So, you know, if you're interested in security, um, there are Bruce Schneier's newsletter, Sands Institute has a daily newsletter of their top stories, and usually some pretty good information there. A couple of things that I read every day. So, shall we get started? Hello. I think I probably have gotten my name around a little bit. I'm Kevin O'Brien, um, and I'm a member of this group and very happy to do this presentation. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I missed last month because of a conflict with church. So, the Linux users group meeting was on Holy Thursday, and I am in the church choir, so I, I was where God wanted me to be for that moment. Otherwise, I probably would have been here. Uh, but we just came off a very successful PenguinCon. Um, the two complaints I heard warmed my heart wonderfully. One of them was, there's too many times I want to see both of these presentations that are opposite each other. <laughs> and if you're a programmer, you love hearing that. And the other one was, these rooms aren't big enough. So. We can mention a third one. Please don't put technical talks next to the music room. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I was there for one of those awful things. Poor Ruth. Almost almost hoarse by the end of that. Always put the musical group in a, in a separate, maybe more insulated. I would have thought a different county actually <laughs> would have been. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm an old fuddy-duddy, so it, it's like, you know, that's rap. That's not music. I am. Yes, I'm proud of it. I came by it honestly, along with the gray hair. Well, yeah, I, it's just one of those things I hadn't thought of the, that, oh, wait a minute, where's the music? I was trying really hard to make sure we had projectors, and mostly that worked. Uh, so anyway, we're starting to work on next year already. So that's the nature of these cons, is it's a year-round activity. So you'll hear more about it. Yeah, we could do that. We could do that. What's the lightning talk? Is that like five, five, ten minutes of the, you, depending on how many of them, you may not be as strict on its time. Yeah. But it's people that come up and talk about something right. for a short period of time. Might just take a room somewhere and say, mm -hmm. you know, like an, this is our unconference over here in this room, you know, bar right. camp it. Um, Yeah. So encryption, you know, the, the, your basic problem is a communications issue. How do you communicate securely if you don't control the entire channel? All right. 
and you know there have been any number of attempts to to do this uh, you know you can go back a couple of thousand years there's the Caesar cipher which is basically the same as rot 13 move everything a certain number of spaces um, there was the German Enigma machine which was very very complex but crackable and I would say one of the reasons it was crackable is it was in the end a purely mechanical process and any mechanical process can be engineered if you're sufficiently ingenious because it's it you can't be random and mechanical um, we get into the electronic communication and you know if, if I pick up the phone and call someone I send an email whatever uh, how do I know someone isn't listening in and and that's where encryption can come into it um, and part of the problem is how do you establish communicate now we know that you can create a very very robust cipher and if I want to communicate with Mike and we agree on what the cipher is I can use that cipher to encrypt messages I'm going to be very careful if possible and not say encode because those are two different things all right encrypt means I'm applying cryptographic obfuscation and code could just mean I'm using a coding like Morse code you know there's no secrecy in Morse code it's just a way of ASCII as a code so Mike and I agree on a cipher and then I can use it to send him messages well that's great but you know how do we do the agreeing agreeing on a cipher part um, I mean, we could get together. We're both in the room right now. I could, you know, write down here's the here's the cipher, give it to him. Uh, now I've just written it down, so there's already an element of insecurity about all of that. You know, what if his pocket is picked? Um, but you know, the the biggest part of it is it restricts me to communicating only with people I can first physically get in contact with but because anything else I mean do I send him an email with the cipher in it well I mean, that can be intercepted I pick up the phone and call him say here's the cipher phone could be tapped so how can I securely create a communications channel and in theory it was first worked out by three people um, Whitfield Diffie um, Ralph Merkel and God, what's Hellman's first name? I don't. Um, anyway, so it's the Diffie Hellman Merkel uh, protocol that they worked out was a theoretical one that said, well, if you could do this, you could create the secure channel. They didn't figure out how to do it. They just sort of said, well, it was theoretically possible. And then the people who worked it out were three people at MIT. And I've got the names here Ronald Rivest, Adi Shamior, and Leonard Edelman. 
So Rivest Shamior Edelman RSA. So you're probably familiar with the initials RSA. And these were the three guys. And what they came up with was uh, a type of a one-way function. Now, a one-way function in mathematics is something where you can go from A to B relatively easily, but it's almost impossible to go from B to A. And the one they came up with involved, at the heart of it, taking two very large prime numbers and multiplying them. Uh, multiplying two numbers is something computers can do very quickly and easily. Then the problem on the other end of it is, can you take an extremely large number and factor it into the prime factors? And that's where it becomes computationally infeasible. Now, when I say computationally infeasible, there's always got to be just a little bit of an asterisk that said, at what level of technology are we talking about? Okay. Uh, so computationally infeasible is a moving target. And so there is an arms race between the people who are trying to create security and the people who are trying to eliminate security. Which is why having the NSA responsible for both of those things is fundamentally really stupid. <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, computationally difficult where, where the. You can do a calculation that says. Capability and, and, and requirement. You can do a calculation that says, given the current level of computing power, if we devoted all the computers in the entire world, for a period of time of six billion years, they still probably wouldn't do it. Right. I would call that computationally infeasible. Right. With, uh, with the known algorithms. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, uh, I'm not morally opposed to spying per se. I just think that having the NSA with a dual mission, they're supposed to be protecting our security <laughs> and spying. And it looks like they put spying as a higher priority and are therefore reducing our security. And a good example of that is something called uh, elliptical curve encryption, uh, which is it's just an algorithm for creating encryption keys that uh, should be very safe and very secure and very efficient. And the National Institute of Standard and Technology put together a working group and, oh, it, the chair of the working group was an NSA person. And they came back with a recommendation that had a number of people kind of scratching their heads saying, hmm, something's funny about this. This is supposed to be very efficient but the algorithm takes forever to run. <laughs> well, in hindsight, I think most people think the NSA deliberately screwed it up because a good, efficient, safe algorithm would have gotten in the way of their ability to decrypt and read all of this traffic. Um, so just one of the ways your government works to make you less safe. So, how do we do this thing? What they came up with was something called a key pair, public key and a private key. 
And you basically, RSA, those three guys, came up with an algorithm for doing that. Um, and what you can do with that is when you create a key pair, you have a public key, and the public key, you know, you can take out an ad in the paper and print it. I have mine on my website. You can go there and, you know, if you take a look at the about page, you're going to see my public key. Uh, there are public key servers all over. I, I may drop in on the MIT one at some point tonight. And you can go there and find someone's public keys. I'm, I'm looking for, and let's say I look for Mike Bernson. You know, I could type in his name and they would come back and say, well, we've got this key. Are you looking for, you know, was it MLB.org? It was yours. And I, and I would recognize that and say, yeah, I bet that's the one. And it would give me the whole printout of your public key. I don't know if this is going too far straight, but there's, is, do these algorithms have anything to say about the magnitude of the public key versus the private key? Yeah, there's a, there's a bit strength that you can choose. Um, at one time, people were doing 1024-bit. Um, I think at this point, 1024-bit is no longer secure. You know, that, that arms race thing caught up. Um, right now, the distinction is between 2048 and 4096. I was referring to the relative, the relative sizes of Oh, you mean the size of the public versus private? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I misunderstood. Yeah. They're going to be slightly different. Again, when you choose a 2048-bit key, it's not really 2048. Approximately. Depending well, on what prime number you get. Right. The two keys are not the two prime numbers. No. Oh, okay. No. Oh, okay. Right. Right. No. The. You don't even know the prime numbers generally. Uh, right. No. What you do when you're creating it. Um, the, the algorithm is pulling the two large prime numbers, it's mixing in some randomness into the sauce, and taking all of that together and coming out with it. So uh, I'm going to take you through that process and you'll see where the, the randomness comes into it. So the idea is that the public key, you, you, you can just give out to anyone. They need to use that public key to encrypt a message to you. All right? So I can't send Mike a message until I have his public key. Now, that public key can be used to encrypt a message, but not to decrypt. So the NSA could not take that public key and decrypt the message I've just created, as far as I know. They can't question me to get your private key. Well, exactly. So if I encrypt a message to Mike and I encrypt it with his public key, he's the only one that can ever decrypt it because he's the only one with the private key. So this is where the one-way function comes in, right? So the encryption yeah. out from me goes in a direction that you need the private key to decode it, but it really can't, you can't do anything with it once it's encrypted. You can't only, the it only the recipient. Right, only the recipient can, but, the, right. but anyone else cannot actually unencrypt it with, with the public key. No, they cannot. They cannot. Um, 
And you cannot have secure communication until you first have the key. Uh, so if you wish to send an encrypted message to someone, you have to get their public key first. If you don't do that, um, you know, I, I got a message from Tony Bemis, uh, Sunday Morning Linux Review and that, who's a, a friend of mine. And uh, he had encrypted it. That's because Tony and I did a talk on encryption at PenguinCon, so you know, we were working with the stuff. I couldn't decrypt it. So I had to go back to him and say, uh, Tony, what's going on? I can't decrypt it. Um, so I don't know what you used to encrypt this message. And it was like, oh, crap, I forgot. I was on my Android phone, and I don't have your key there. I must have used my own. <laughs> it was like, well, I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't decrypt that. Um, so... Uh, that's the, the basics of it, because uh, with this, I don't have to worry about the secure channel. I just put my public key out there. I say to anyone, get it. Um, it's on a public key server. If anyone wants to go, and the, the key servers sync with each other, sort of like the way DNS servers do. So it doesn't matter which key server you upload the key to. Within a fairly short time, it'll be on all of them. Um, and so you can get the key, and then you can use that to send an encrypted message. Now, the other thing you can do, and this is a little bit different. You might mention the man in the middle attack there. You brought up the key storage. That's, that's the beauty of the system. No, you're assuming, so far, you're assuming that the key server is not compromised. Doesn't matter. It's public. It's public. That you're assuming that the okay. key you upload the is the key that uh, someone else okay. has downloaded. Wait, 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 he's only gotten so far. He's only yeah. gotten okay. so far. Okay. So you're talking about the person who's receiving it can't decrypt it. Well, no, no, no. no. Yes. No, because. No I, no, I know what he's getting at, and I will address it. Okay. Yeah. I will address it. Okay. Um, and yeah. that's the whole web of trust thing that yeah. you have to build. Okay. Um, and I'm going to get there. But. Generally speaking, I mean, you know, if the NSA goes to the MIT key server, which they undoubtedly do, because it's public, um, they can get all the public keys, and fat lot of good it'll do them. All right? Um, so, uh, you know, encrypting a message is one thing. There's another thing you can do and that is what's called digital signing. And you may have seen digitally signed messages. And those, you can read the message. The message itself is perfectly clear. And then there's something that actually looks an awful lot like Base64, because essentially it is, <laughs> at the bottom that says, this is the digital signature. So what that does is it provides um, Essentially, the, the, the technical term is non-repudiation, all right? I signed this with my key, and I'm the only one who could have done that. And if someone somehow gets in the middle and changes the message, it's like changing one bit and then running the MD5 on a file. You'll get an entirely different MD5 hash. 
if you if you change anything in the message, it suddenly won't match up with what's in the digital signature. So that's the other thing you can, those are the, basically the two things you do, is you either digitally sign, which is just a way of saying, yeah, I did this, I'm standing behind it, you know this came from me, or encrypt, which is to say, I only want the intended recipient to be able to see this. I, I'm not sure what good it does to... Okay, so I, I've got to get trust out of the way now, apparently, or we'll never get on with the presentation. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that is an issue. How do you know, just because you go to a key server and it says Kevin O'Brien, how do you know that it really is my key that you're looking at? Um, and how do we do that? Well, it's not perfect, but there is what's called a web of trust that you build up. And the way that works is you get your key signed by other people who know you. All right. And that could mean, for instance, uh, Tony and I have signed each other's key. It's pretty easy for me to know that I'm talking to Tony because I see him a lot. I talk to him on the phone, what have you. So all I have to do is say, uh, Tony, is, is this your key? Now, most keys are identified with an eight-character thumbnail. could be a little larger, but typically eight characters is enough. So I would just say, ah, the eight-character thumbnail I have for you is blah, 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 blah. Is that correct? And he says, yeah, I'm talking to him on the phone. I know what he sounds like. So I say, great. And so I will sign that key and mark it that I trust it. Now, there's different levels of trust. All right, there's, oh, I, you know, met this guy and... He had a driver's license that had the same name and photo, so it's probably okay. Or, this is someone I know, so it's even higher. And then the very highest one is ultimate, and I only assign that to my own key. I trust my key ultimately. I trust Tony's key highly. I trust someone who's shown me an ID moderately. Well, as a practical matter, possibly not much. It's a matter of whether anyone cares to verify all right, who signed the key and with what level of trust. Gotcha. Okay. See, if I, if I wanted to talk to 
what's his name? Uh, I don't know him, mm-hmm. but I know Kevin. So if Kevin signed his key, yeah, I can find. I find that's on the key server as well. So I can find out what Kevin trusts the guy. So right. I, I might, you know, I might assign him a little. I would then assign him the next lower level of trust. Because it's one level removed. And, you know, I might have been drunk when I said I know who he was, so you wouldn't give that the same level of trust. Um, And, in fact, at, like, Linux conventions and similar sorts of places, it's not uncommon to have a key signing party arranged, and you come there with your um, eight-character thumbnail um, ID of your key and identification, and, you know, people will take a look at that and then sign your key on that basis. So, so that's, that's what the web of trust is about. It's not 100% perfect, but... It's only the last eight they aren't signing full fingerprints? Well, you can... Yeah. If, if someone has their, their entire key memorized and will can quote you their entire key, then great. Yeah, the, no, the, the eight-character one is, is enough to make the connection. So, two products that... The first one was something called PGP, Pretty Good Privacy, created by a guy named Phil Zimmerman employed originally something slightly different, but after a while he decided to go with RSA as the standard for what he did. Now he created this PGP. Government actually started into down the road of prosecuting him for violating the Munitions Act because he put it on the internet. Well, anyone can get it. <laughs> So you're exporting deadly munitions to the rest of the world now, and they they gave up. They never they never actually followed through all the way on the prosecution. Uh, but it was not considered at the time, and it, and it wasn't really. It was not open. It was not open source. It was not free software, however you want to put it. And I think these days we understand you don't want encryption that you can't look at in some way and at least understand what's going on. So what happened was they came up with a, a sort of reverse engineered approach called GNU Privacy Guard, GPG. Now, shortly after that, Zimmerman open sourced PGP anyway. So you can get open PGP or GPG. They're absolutely equivalent. So. I just use GPG because, you know, I'm on a Linux box. Why the hell wouldn't I? It comes with a distro. So, with the command GPG and then the argument dash dash gen dash key, okay, I can see it's copyright by the Free Software Foundation. Um, what kind of key do you want? Now, you've got a few options here. Notice that if you only want to digitally sign, you could choose three or four, and that would only give you a digital signing key. 
It would not give you the whole key pair. So if you want the whole key pair, you've got to go with one or two. They give you a couple of different options. Um, I don't have a PhD in cryptography, so I, I'm not going to tell you what the difference is between those two options. I'm just going to say I always go RSA. All right, it's kind of industry standard. So I want to get a key pair. Okay. How many bits long do I want it to be? Now, I already said 1024 is too small. That's, that does not provide security any longer. 20, 30 years ago, it might have been just fine. All right. Well, Definitely nothing lasts years forever. Um, 20 years ago, it was fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, NIST says 2048 will be perfectly secure until the year 2030. Now, do we want to trust NIST? I already mentioned they were somehow implicated in that elliptical curve thing. Um, on the other hand, they feel really burned by that whole thing. <laughs> and they're pissed. Um, you know, the, the, the argument between them is that, well, 4096 is, puts a little more of a computational load on there. With today's computers, I, I'm not sure that it's really enough of a load to really matter. So. Um, there was, I, I ran across something somewhere that said 4096 the keys were incompatible with some storage cards and stuff like that. Uh, my guess is if that's an issue for you, you'll stumble across it. Um, but it's not an issue for me. Um, how long should the key be valid? Uh, you can have the key last in perpetuity. I, I don't think that's a very sound policy myself. Because we have to consider what happens if for any reason your key is compromised, which can happen. Um, you know, you... Uh, I've been doing a series on this for Hacker Public Radio, and I was explaining um, how to get stuff onto Android. And they said, well, you just you, you export your key into this ASCII file and copy it onto your phone and then import it into this thing. And it was like, and now you've got your key in a readable text file sitting on your phone, dummy. Delete the file. Well, you might forget. And I'll, last time I looked at this if you remember to delete well no if you but it's not a secure delete it doesn't wipe it not by default I haven't yeah right and the other thing is of course that um Recent court rulings have said that, well, you really have no expectation of privacy in your phone. So if the 
If the cops think you're a person of interest, they don't even need a warrant. They'll just grab your phone and read everything that's on it. Uh, now, that could get overturned, but it's not a good precedent. So, uh, you know, there is a process for revoking keys, and we'll talk about that. Um, but it's not a bad idea to just let the key expire after a few years. You can always do another one. I mean, the worst that's going to happen is that someone uses the old key and doesn't realize it's expired, and it's like, oh, I don't have your key anymore. And you just say, well, go to the key server and download it again. Um, now I've talked to some security people who say, yeah, that's really the best way to do it. Yeah. You can also use the other, the old expired key. Oh, yeah, it doesn't disappear. It's so the, the, the possibility that right. somebody else out there might also right. be able to do it if yours has been compromised. If yeah. Like that now, if somebody writing you a message they think are secure. If it's expired, the, you know, the key server should say, well, this key isn't valid anymore. I mean, it doesn't remove it. It just marks it. And it's the same thing if you actually do an actual revocation. It doesn't make the key disappear. It just adds a little flag that says, oh, well, the owner revoked this. You might want to think about this. Uh, so let's say. Um, After all, the key server is just a convenience in a way. Right. So let's say two years for this key. All right. So May 14th at 8.47 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time in the year 2016. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, now, user ID. Um, this is built out of some information that you put in here. So the first thing is real name. Um, I would use my real name because otherwise, how is anyone going to find my key? All right. Um, so that's not where the security lies in this thing. Um, unless you are so well known by some other. I was about to say, whatever name you want people to know you by. You know, Klaatu probably has Klaatu in as his real name, for all I know. Because I don't know anyone who calls him anything else, except his mother, maybe. And my email address. A comment. Anything. The uh -huh. Can't spell worth a damn, though. I'm not that cool. All right, so now I get one more chance to look at this. Uh, and I say, yeah, that's okay. Passphrase. This is where the security comes in. All right, if someone got a hold of the binary of your private key, 
and they know your passphrase, you have no security anymore. This matters, in other words. I'm assuming that if you're doing, you're going to all the trouble to create an encryption key that you are actually concerned about your privacy. Which means putting in your cat's name, Fluffy, as your passphrase would be really stupid. Right. This is one of those where your phrase should probably consist of several different words mixed up with numbers and, you know, two Sanskrit hieroglyphs and a uh, squirrel sound. So, in this particular one, I have five words, some of which are capitalized, five different numerals, and two added marks. What do you call those symbols, the top of the numbers? Special characters. Special characters, thank you. Now, did I do it right? Yep, apparently I did. Now, remember that we said that this was a combination of a random number generator and, and some uh, prime numbers and blah, 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 entropy at work. So what are you going to do? Uh, basically, at this point, I just sort of move my mouse around a little bit. Um, you know, how much of a hurry are you in? Uh, I'm just going to keep doing this because we're doing a presentation and I want to get out of here. If I was just hanging around at home, I'd, you know, go surf the web for 20 minutes and come back and see when it was done. But it, it's, it's got to harvest some entropy in here and moving my mouse around. Now, I, I heard someone at, at PenguinCon who was talking about this said that if you move your mouse around slowly, it actually works faster. I don't know if that's as opposed to like this. Is so. this real? This, this is the part where it just seems This is live. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 but the, no, I know that you're doing it live because I've actually done this before. But this particular part about move your mouse around yeah. and it will do something magical. Yeah. You, you can yeah. move your mouse, but you can type, you can move. And because you're getting you random events that, it is, that the kernel is using, and if you move the mouse slower, it tends to be forced. Yeah. often is to where the mouse is. See, you move it quicker. At, at one point, people tried to put in algorithms to generate random numbers. Now, by definition, if it's generated by a ra an algorithm, it is not random. And so we used to call them pseudo-random. It's, it's probably using either the interrupt rate or, or something else about the, about, the, about, the, about the movement of the mouse to generate random information. Yes, correct. Right. 
you could, you could use a different window. You could use yes. either yeah. a rival time for network packets. You could yes. use anything. You, you there is a whole right. big discussion yeah. as to exactly what the random right. number, and there are arguments that it isn't random enough. Right, but it's very, it is very, actually very, very real. Right. And the thing about the mouse is, is that it, it's something that you have direct control of immediately. Right. It's, it's it's generating data. Right. Now, the only thing that right. Right. while we're on this. Now, while, while I'm doing this, um, right, it's, it's going to take a while. So while, while I'm doing all of this, um, I want to address something, which is uh, I have occasionally heard someone say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, NSA has more money than God. They've got some place out in Utah that is like 17 city blocks wide, stuffed with hard drives and CPUs, and they'll just throw money and computing power, and you know, there's nothing you can do. Um, the NSA's own behavior proves that false. Uh, aside from which, my philosophy on that is you just have to make it more expensive than your interest level. Well, there, there is that. Um, I basically, if, if you're a person of interest, um, well, I don't know why I'm going backwards here. Yeah, there, there's a couple of things that we can point to. The first one is um, LavaBit, if any of you are familiar with that one. Uh, Ladar Levison supposedly secure email. The problem was it was secure based on Ladar Levison holding the keys for all of his customers. So the NSA came and said, okay, we want the key to everything. And he ended up shutting down his business rather than cooperate with them. Now, this was a, a big deal and, and he is being prosecuted for contempt of court um, and has a defense fund and, and all of that. Um, but one of the things we, we see is that, you know, if the NSA could just decrypt anything anyway, they wouldn't need to go through that. The other thing is that we've since found out a lot about other things the NSA does, uh, which are basically how to get key loggers onto computers and all of these other kinds of things. They've got any number of, of creative ways of trying to get at it, which again indicates, you know, if they could just throw it into their computer system and decrypt it, they wouldn't. spending a lot more time not at individuals, but at the backbone routers. Being oh, there, there's that, that too. So that they can um, traffic that wasn't routed to them by the telcos anyway. Right. And it's well, this is. Advantage if they're watching traffic, 
to be looking at a backbone monitor yeah. than trying to get into your machine. So when the Snowden revelations first came out, a lot of people were looking at this. Um, Bruce Schneier, um, I pay a lot of attention to Bruce Schneier because I have no idea. Uh, it's probably because I lead a sinful life and this is my punishment. Something's happening. Are you typing or? No, I'm not doing anything. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, fortunately, I already have a key, so we'll, we'll just skip over the rest of it. Basically, that was the process you would go through on the command line. The, the one thing we didn't get to was generating a revocation certificate. And it recommends that you do that at the time that you're creating the key pair. Revocation certificate is what you would send to the key server if for some reason you thought your key had been compromised or if for any reason at all you just wanted to revoke the key. Um, so we didn't get to that stage of this. Um, now, there are alternative ways of doing this. I do it on a command line because it's a Linux users group. I mean, why wouldn't I do the command line at the Linux users group, right? Um, there are GUI programs available on a variety of platforms. GPG is completely cross-platform. It is not Linux only. You can get it in Windows, Mac OS. Um, there is a uh, KDE program called KGPG, uh, or if you're more on the GNOME side, uh, right now I'm in Unity, which is a GNOME under the hood. Uh, so Seahorse is uh, equivalent um, program. Although I'd, I'd have to tell you my some of the stuff in Seahorse I haven't quite gotten to work yet, and I'm not a, it, it, that may be operator error, but when I Google it, I find other people are having the same problem, so. Yeah. Um, I may move this thing back to KDE one of these days. Um, so, uh, those are the, the other th things you can do. Now, we said that you could go to these servers. So I'm going to take you to a key server. Eventually. Well, it says it. Yeah, it says I'm connected to WCCNet. The Firefox should still open. Oh, probably. Um, 
see if I remember. Yes, I do. So, MIT. This is one of the large public key servers out there, pgp.mit.edu. And you can do a search. So let's see if I'm in here. Now there's a lot of these. Yeah, and that, and and there's also one that um, is only 1024 bit, and that was an early. I was just playing around, but it exists. Um, so. You take a look at it, and you can see that here's my key and my eight character E50BB64E that identifies my key. And you can see that my friend Tony, as I said, signed it. And here is his key. Now, um, there is the key. So if you wanted to import this key because you wanted to send me something, you would highlight everything from here all the way to the bottom. So, in other words, you've got to include that beginning and end of the PGP block. And in some programs, there's just a window where you paste it in. In other ones, you need to paste it into a text file and then import the text file. So, those are a couple of, of good ways to import keys. So as we said, you, you have to do that before you can send a message to anyone. Right? So if you want to get into sending encrypted messages, start grabbing some uh, public keys of people that you w wish to correspond with. Um, and you can start doing it. Now, uh, there is a point of view that says, well, if you start sending encrypted email, that'll make you stand out to the NSA. That'll make you a person of interest. Um, I'm pretty sure I've got at least an FBI file at this point. I've had an FBI file since I was 18. We're close in age. Were you a draft resistor? No. Oh, okay. You had a different way of I getting there. I was an employee. Oh, well, that, that's another thing. Ah. I was a draft dodger, so. No, I, uh, I tried to enlist when the Army has something on me. Draft dodger or conscientious objector? Uh, all of the above. That's a big difference. That's a huge difference. Yeah, well. I think. Maybe it should be a huge difference. I'm just saying I have reason to suspect <coughs> that I have a file. I've also seen when the FBI's been point blank told to go look at somebody 
they don't always pay any attention. Oh, I, yeah. Um, They're not terribly Like the Keystone Cops sometimes. But my feeling is the more people use encryption, the less they can focus on anyone. And the other thing is I, I like to just use encryption with people that are into that sort of thing. Because then if I ever have to send something encrypted, it doesn't stand out as much. I'm just known to be someone who sends encrypted messages Another around. Thing I will suggest is anybody who runs a mail server ought to be running TLS encryption at Indeed. Yeah. And in fact, um, uh, I was uh, poking around with Seahorse, and it will manage both GPG and SSH keys. So. I know you're big on SSH keys. You do that at your work. So, you have that. What do you do? Let's get to the practical part. Assuming you've got your keys, Kept clicking on it, so now it's. Um, so now, email. Uh, if you're using MUT on the command line, I'm sorry, I don't do that. <laughs> if you're that sort of person, you probably can figure it out for yourself. Google is your friend. I'm going to show you what I know. I use two email programs. One of them is Gmail in a browser, and the other is Thunderbird. Each one of them has a plug-in that'll get the job done. So, uh, Uh, yeah, SSL. All all Google connections are at this point. Yeah. Um, so the the plugin for Thunderbird is something called Enigmail. Open PGP message encryption. Remember, I said PGP, Open PGP, and GPG are equivalent. So it doesn't make any difference. They'll both work. Uh, my experience is that if you install the plugin, it will find your key because in the file system, it's in a standardized place. Although, if that didn't happen, you could figure out where to point it. So, it says, hey, we found something. It's in. <laughs> user bin GPG. Now, if for some reason that's not what I wanted to use, I could override it. Passphrase. Remember the passphrase for five minutes. It's kind of like sudo on a terminal window, right? That's also got like a five minute stay alive. Um, the thing about 
using GPG or PGP or whatever is if you want security, you really need to use your passphrase every time you do things. And that's why it's a limited. Uh, I'm just telling you, if you say, oh, screw this, I'm going to turn this up to 10 hours. <laughs> well, you know, that's your. Uh, I believe it does because I always have to come back and reauthorize it. Wow, you don't set it to hours so that you could exit. No, I'd leave it at the five minutes. Right. Yeah. But I could see it being useful to say, in this session, I want you to remember it for this session. So does that does that mean that that when it says remember passphrase, does that mean that that somewhere in your computer's memory the passphrase in clear text is sitting there? Yeah. For that amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. You know, if if that was an issue for you, now I'm not a Soviet agent, so. Um, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, take it down if that's your problem. Uh, you know, figure out. You know, what's the minimum length of time it would take the FBI to kick in the door and come in with a can of Freon and freeze your RAM chips, and set it to below that amount of time? You can do that. It probably would be easier to just set a thermite charge on that. And then there were expert settings. Suspicion doesn't put you in jail. Yeah. No. Um, right. So, you know, if you go to the advanced settings, you can do some things like. Uh, you know, how do you select the keys? Uh, do you want to uh, always encrypt or sign replies to messages that were encrypted or signed to begin with? Um, you know, put a comment in the signature. That just helps tell people what you were using to do this. Um, you know, here's key servers. Uh, there's there's a bunch of them. Um, note this pool. All right. So this is part of how all of these servers communicate with each other as they get into a pool. Um, someone out there has got an LDAP server. Um, right. So anyway. Um, That was just showing you. So, you know, you can you can get this. It's just the normal process that, you know, you go into Thunderbird, you say, look for add-ons, you type in Enigmail, it comes up, you install it. No big deal. So let's say I wish to write a message. All right, so I open up my client. I want to write a message. And uh Oh, gee, who should I communicate with? Oh, Ken Fallon from Hacker Public Radio.
That will warm the cockles of Ken's heart. Yeah, I'm, I am not a very good typist, and even less so on, <laughs> on a laptop. So at this point, I've got my message. I've got an open PGP up here. Look what I can do. I can sign it, or I can encrypt it. Okay? Now, so I can send a signed message to anyone in the world. I don't need to know anything about them. I picked Ken because I, just for the fun of it, I'm going to encrypt this message. Oh, that, that one expired. All right, let's try. Good, still set. I'm just realizing that it's my key that it's saying that about. Well, yeah, you're trying to use the one that you created just today. No, no. All right, I'm not quite sure because last night it was working great. Did it expire today? Uh, no. Live demonstrations, they always go like this. Yeah. The demon of live demos. Well, that. That should have gone, and I, I could try signing or encrypting, as the case may be. But that's Enigmail. It, it's pretty simple and straightforward. Um, when people send something to you, um, if it's encrypted and they used your public key, then a window pops up saying, uh, you know, enter your passphrase. That's how you're going to access it. If it was digitally signed, it'll tell you something like, hopefully, this signature is good. You know, it, everything matches up. The message was not altered in any way. Now, um, so yeah. If you're sending it to someone, you have this add-on in it. Is it, do you have to do something originally to get the right Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I 
yeah, live demos, as someone said. Um, but yeah, that that's the. the Remembering, yeah, when you were generating the key, it seemed to, that was what it was complaining about, is that you weren't well, yeah. connected to the key ring. Right, because that should just be your own directory. Right. Um, he may have done something such that by default his key ring is lo isn't getting unlocked when he's logged in. I've seen GNOME do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, with Gmail, there's uh, something similar. Uh, this is in Chrome. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. This is, uh, this is a plugin that's available in Firefox as well. I don't know how many other browsers, but definitely Firefox and Chrome. It's called Mailvelope. Um, secure Mail Open PGP Encryption. Um, Yeah, and when I first looked at it a few months ago, it was encrypt only. They have since added digital signing, which is a nice thing. All right, so you can access all of my data. Yep, those are the permissions. So this should work better because I'm seeing my key ring here. I don't know why I wasn't seeing it in Thunderbird, but so, I've got... So, are you using the same key for, for both uh, Thunderbird and Google Mail? Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, I... Mm -hmm. You generated one key. I generated one key. So, here's the process. Um, if you... Um, if you have generated a key, what you want to do is you want to export is the, the phrasing. You export the key and that creates an ASCII text file and that ASCII text file can then be imported in anywhere else. So if you had, um, like in my case, I have several different, you know, I've got a desktop, I've got a laptop, I've got an Android phone. Um, I want to have it available to me wherever I am. So I export the key as this ASCII text file, and then I can go in and import it into whatever program and say, yeah, this is my key. Um, so, um, if I w wanted to import, for instance, I showed you that you could go to a key server and get the public, anyone's public key, I could just paste it right in there. If instead I had it as a text file, I could choose the file and bring it in that way. Um, if for some reason I had never gotten around to generating a key, you know, you can go through the whole process here and Enigmail will let you generate a key as well. Um, it's supposed to. I, yeah, uh, no, I, I don't believe so. Um, so anyway, those are the, the keys that I have. So what happens if you install this, and I, I'm sure many people here have used uh, G 
Gmail. So you're probably used to what it looks like. But when I go to compose, um, you're going to see something down here that's just a little bit different. You probably haven't seen that in a compose window before. So, let's try this again. time I did this it didn't work. So I better put in I hope. So if I just click send I haven't done anything. This is where I need to make use of that other window over here. Uh, I've got two things up here. The first one is the signing. So if I click that, it's just going to add a digital signature. The second one with the lock is the encryption. Now, this is like a sub-edit window. I've got all of my message text in there, and what I'm going to do is either add a signature or add an encryption. So let's add an encryption just for fun. Now, I transfer. And this is what my message now looks like. Okay? Now, if I click send, That's why I don't really want to type it in again. <laughs> See, I didn't need to use my passphrase to encrypt it because it's Ken's public key I'm using. I don't need to prove who I am. I simply have his key. So anyway, I'm going to click send. Right. Now, the last thing I want to mention, my Android phone. Um, what I use there, there's a program called K9 Mail that I use in place of Thunderbird. Um, and with K9 Mail, you can use with uh, a, a program called APG, Android Privacy Guard. Uh, you can download APG from the uh, Google Play Store. Download K9 Mail from the Google Play Store if you wish. Uh, just those two things really work together well. Um, so what you have to do is 
you have to export your key from your desktop and get it onto your phone. Now I use something called AirDroid that I really like. It allows me to create a Wi-Fi connection. So um, I basically turn my phone into a web server for a few minutes, just long enough for me to make a connection from my desktop. And then over Wi-Fi, I can upload a file. And uh, so I took my exported key, uploaded it. Um, and then all I had to do was go into APG and say, here it is, and point it there. Now, one of the things I ran into initially was it was not, it wouldn't let me see the directory that I actually had uploaded it to. So I then used a uh, file manager. The one I use is called Astro, but there's tons of them. And once I opened that up, then all of a sudden I could see everything. And so I told APG, here's my key, bring it in, at which point my K9 mail suddenly has sign and encrypt. Every time I create a message, it's like a checkbox that I can put in and get that going. Obviously, if I am signing, I have to put in my passphrase. Um, I can tell you I've done it. Uh, a, a long, complicated passphrase is twice as annoying when you're doing it on a <laughs> cell phone. Uh, So, um, that's about what I had for tonight. One thing I might ask, can you send yourself an encrypted mail so that we can see it on the other side, receiving one? Can you just send yourself a mail? Can you Uh, the problem is, if I do, I'll be sending it to Thunderbird, <laughs> which is not cooperating with me at the moment for reasons I have not quite figured out. Oh, okay. Why can't you send it to? You can, you can for Gmail. You can send the mail to Gmail, your Gmail account. You don't have to send it to a different account. Send it to Washbox. No. No, please don't. Well, let's let's see if I can. Uh, So this is where now I have to Okay. Good. Thanks for the suggestion.
Um, I I don't I I have not looked at that. I have looked at um, there are a couple of things that I know that are available for like instant messaging. Uh, Moxie Marlin Spike I think has a a program that is well thought of. Um, there's another one. Do I have it on my phone? Yeah, OTR through um, pigeon or, or. Yeah, so I can't remember the name offhand of the other one that I was looking at. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's one that Steve Gibson was very high on. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't offhand know what it is. Uh, but I, I know Mark Moxie Marlin Spike did one. So yeah, no, I haven't. Um, I mean, I, I. I text people on my phone. Other than that, I don't use chat very much. So this was really, these are the things that I, I use and therefore I've looked at and I know something about. Anything else? Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. getting into what is the actual algorithm involved in calculating this um, I get a good get a good book on cryptography um, it's actually a really simple algorithm for generating the key the hard part is generating the prime number right okay um, I mean one of the things we had to do was you know, just write a program writing a program to generate And and Bruce Schneier does have a well-regarded book on uh, cryptography. Well, it was it was kind of interesting. He. He announced that it could be found um, in a way that sort of he wasn't actually telling you to go out and do it, but sort of implying that he wasn't going to haunt you to the rest of your life if you did. Yeah. It was like, well, someone's done this, so there it is. It's more like the publisher doesn't want him to 
quote in an open form announced where yeah. <laughs> now he was uh, he does make it to PenguinCon from time to time and um, oh yeah and I think it was 2013 he was there and I got my copy of Schneier on security signed so yeah I I like that uh, he's yeah he's uh, he moved back to the I think in the Boston area now um, he was in England for a while he let's see what was he he invented which encryption algorithm I mean if you look it up in Wikipedia it was like two fish or something that that he did that he created that and then I I think he was the CEO of counterpane security and then well yeah he uh, the, the latest, uh, and he talks about the the fact that, um, yeah, the the newest encryption standard. He submitted something. Uh, they chose a different one, but he said, you know, the one they chose is perfectly good. You know, as far as we know. As far as we know. Um, the problem is, you're used to thinking about a dual key system. There are many three key systems that you only need two of. Yeah. And you, unless the algorithms are really simple, it is really hard to figure out if there's truly a third key right. involved. And one of the things, I, he has a book um, that I recommend called Beyond Fear, and he started writing it shortly after 9-11. Um, and basically, the point of what he was writing was there is no possible way to have 100% security and the cost of doing it would make it a very bad world to live in so let's think about this sensibly and in the book he lays out um, a model that says you know here are the five questions you should be asking yourself whenever you're looking at security um, and you know it's, it's stuff like uh, <laughs> I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but it's sort of like, first of all, what are you trying to protect? You know, what is the asset you're worried about? Uh, secondly, well, you know, what threats should you be worried about with respect to that particular asset? And then, you know... The consequences of... Right. And... Uh, yeah, what is the cost of the protection? Would your proposed countermeasures actually do anything to reduce that threat? What are, in, you know, the, the law of unintended consequences, you know, back when I was teaching statistics, I used to have so much trouble explaining to my students that if you reduce type one error, you increase type two error. Um, and, you know, that's just the nature of the universe that that happens. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he goes through all of that. A year from now, do you really care if somebody knew that? Yeah. Well, you might. You might. I mean, it's just an act in control how big of keys. 
some of the stuff goes into symmetric encryption afterwards. Mm -hmm. And there's just a lot of how deep do you need to protect that secret right. for how long may depend on how much effort you want to put into it. Right. Yeah. And for those that are really paranoid, there are USB keys that'll do the, all of the key signing. Mm -hmm. You load the key up and can't get the key back out of the USB device once it's loaded. YubiKey? YubiKey? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I actually have one of those. Do you? Um, I got it from Mark Stanislav, who is another one of our speakers at PenguinCon, but he's spoken here a few times. He works for a company in Ann Arbor called Duo Security. Um, so he did a talk on two-factor authentication, which is, oddly enough, what his company does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I heard. You can use that as a two-factor system in those keys. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got one from him at uh, Indiana Linux Fest a few years ago. And that was, yeah, that was the whole thing about two-factor that, you know, Mark was talking about is, uh, you know, a password plus a pin is not two-factor. Right. <laughs> it's just a slightly more complicated password. Yeah. Yeah, it's double. I mean, it's, it's, it's not two-factor, but it's doubly passworded. Yeah, but Which that doesn't. The problem well, is, if I've broken one, I probably have both. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You want you want I mean, to pick something yeah. from what? Yeah. Well, you aren't going to two-factor. It's what you have, what you know, and who you want. I, the point is, it's not two-factor. What it, it's it's something, something is better than nothing. nothing. It ain't two-factor. Um, so his company, Duo Security, does offer. Um, a two-factor system of some kind, but it looks like it's really geared towards companies. So, for the money, that. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, we're, we actually pilot that. Uh, that's what. Oh, cool. It's, um, it's Tell us. The, it's a sort of a phone-based. Um, yeah. System. So you, you, you something you have, right? Right. That pushes a message to your phone and say, "Hey, uh, are you actually trying to log in?" Uh, you say yeah. Yes. Okay, then you log in. So, in essence, that's pretty similar to uh, like with Google two-factor, right. um, which I have turned on. I encourage everyone turn on two-factor. Um, yes, it's a pain in the neck that you go to log in on a new computer. You've got to wait a few seconds, but. You get a text message on your phone with a six-digit number to type in, and then they're more than happy to let you in. Does it only ask you when it doesn't recognize the MAC address? I think it's a cookie or something like that. It's actually um, it's both, and, and it, it allows you to set a timeout and say, you don't want to try it. You don't want to do this again in the next 30 days. Mm -hmm. And then you can keep using that device. Yeah. Mm. 
You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.